This is the LSE British Politicast. I'm Joel Suss, editor of the LSE Politics and Policy blog. Like the posts on our blog, which are published twice daily, the British Politicast aims to bring academic, evidence-based perspectives to the political issues facing Britain today. You can visit us at lsepoliticsblog.com. In this episode, we talk to experts about austerity and central bank policies. The UK coalition government embarked on a program of spending cuts when it came to power in 2010. With a large public sector debt and budget deficits and a demographic future that entails ever larger public spending, the government has justified austerity by pointing to the dangers of rising borrowing costs and argued that it would be economically expansive to enact such policies. However, many economists and academics now agree that the intellectual justification for austerity has crumbled, and it is not a sensible strategy in bad economic times. Instead, the government should be engaged in stimulating the economy by spending more money, especially on infrastructure and other projects that will pay off in the future and create jobs now. Curiously, public backlash against austerity has subsided as time has gone on, and many have come to accept the new realities of the age of austerity in which we live. In a moment, we will hear from Financial Times economics journalist Claire Jones. But first, I talk to Mark Blythe, professor of international political economy at Brown University in the United States, about his new book on austerity and why the economic policy is merely a form of self-harm. Your book is titled Austerity, The History of a Dangerous Idea. What's so dangerous about it? It never works. Never, ever, zero positive cases in the historical record. That was one of the most surprising things about doing the research for the book. I had completely bought the idea that there were circumstances in which individual countries that were not contracting at the same time as everyone else, in a sense, could basically grow while paying back debt. But the thing is, when you actually get into the specifics of the cases that are cited for this, one of them is Canada, interestingly enough, that's not actually what happens. What happens, take the Canadian case. So from 1976 to 1986, the the Canadian dollar undergoes a 40% nominal, 30% real devaluation. Beginning in about 1983, basically, the American economy goes through a huge expansion. It's, I think, 11 times the size of the Canadian economy at that point, and it takes over 75% of Canada's exports. So think about this. Canada devalues. The Americans start growing, and their exchange rate effectively goes up. They buy as much stuff as they possibly can from Canada. Canada banks the cash. Ten years later, they come along and say, we've got a lot of debt. The Wall Street Journal's getting freaked out. Why don't we pay down the debt? Well, they were able to do that because they grew. It's not that they cut and then they grew, and that's actually the story, and it's an absolutely ordinary story of fiscal consolidation when you've got the money to do so. What we have now in Europe, and the reason it's so toxic and why it's such a dangerous idea, is if you have countries that are each other's trading partners simultaneously trying to do this, all you do is shrink GDP, and the same constant stock of debt gets bigger rather than smaller, which is the situation everyone from Britain to Greece and Ireland and Portugal find themselves in. And Britain is doing this, even though it has its own currency, it could avoid doing this, but it to do this, and that's the price you pay for this dangerous idea. So it's good that you brought up Britain right there. Many people now are calling for the government to end its austerity program. Even the IMF has come out and said it's time for them to change course. What are the reasons why the government is not listening and is still cutting spending in the short term? Is it because, as some say, that it would be politically costly to do so? Or, as others maybe suggest, that the government's ideologically driven and just intends to shrink government down? Uh, what is your take? Couldn't, couldn't all those things be true simultaneously? So uh, is it the case that conservatives traditionally would like to cut back the state? Check. Right. Would they be ideologically opposed to a larger state role in the government? Check. Right. So these are not, con- you know, you don't have to contrary-wise uh, tell these stories. So I think it's a combination of all of them. The most interesting one to me is the whole notion of kind of rhetorical or 
entrapment. It's a bit like Merkel. So once Merkel has actually said to the voting public, it's those Greeks, they don't do any work, they don't pay any taxes, and that's the problem. Well, you know, that may or may not be true, but that's not why you turbocharge austerity across a whole continent. The real reason behind the whole thing, as I go into the the book, is essentially that you have a banking system that's twice the size, well, three times the size and twice as levered as the United States in comparison. And they have a kind of half-central bank that can't reach in and do the types of asset swap plus quantitative easing that Ben Bernanke has done to clean up the system. So you have turbocharged, highly levered banks, stuffed with crappy assets, and no way to remove it from the balance sheet, and the Germans aren't big enough to bail the system. So you could tell that really complex story, because that's what's true, or you could just blame it on the Greeks. Well, once you've done that, it's hard to turn around and tell another story. And Osborne gets it. He's not a stupid person. He understands that this is becoming self-defeating, particularly in the context of everybody else doing it at the same time. And he'd love to change course. But what's his new story? And does he turn around and say, yeah, guys, you're right, you know, I've been really screwing up for the past four years, but I got the message and I'm going to turn around and do something else. That's not going to happen. So what are you going to do instead? You're going to give everybody in the United Kingdom their own personal Fanny and Freddie. You're basically going to build a housing bubble. That's crazy. You said earlier that austerity is always a bad idea. Um, I read a review of your book from Larry Summers in the FT criticizing that point exactly, saying debt is essentially deferred spending cuts and deferred tax rises. What do you kind of say back to that? I don't believe in Ricardian equivalence because ultimately if you – which is the idea that basically a tax cut now must be paid with a, ta- a tax increase later on. Conversely, debt issued now must be paid back at some point in the future. The United States hasn't paid back its Civil War debt yet. The reason being that the size of the economy since that period has dwarfed the debt stock. The best way, in fact, the only real way you get rid of debt is through growth. So is it the case that there's, you know, there's austerity has never worked? Well, Larry cites his own example of paying back debt during the early Clinton years. But that's because they were growing. It's easy to pay back debt. You just need the political will if you have income. But it's the old paradox of thrift once again. In order to actually save, you need to have income from which to save. If you've undergone a collapse and you save, all you do is shrink the economy. There's less income overall, and you end up with more debt rather than less. That's the response. Another point you brought up is um, you've kind of changed um, your argument, saying you were for bank bailouts initially, and now you've, uh, you've said, I think, in the book that you wouldn't bail out the banks if you were to do it again. The costs of that are obviously immense for society. What, what's your Have justification? Have I lost my mind? Why would I say that? Let's think through the U.S. crisis. The way I used to tell the story when I thought we should bail them was the following. You've got 160 million people in the U.S. labor market, a little bit less now because of the dislocation. And uh, about 72% of Americans, according to one survey, live paycheck to paycheck. About 70% would have a hard time getting more than $2,000 together at short notice because of the income skew we've generated over the past 30 years. Britain's not that much different. What's behind all this is a maldistribution of income and therefore purchasing power. But anyway, given that that's the sort of the structures you're facing, there are 55 million handguns in the U.S. So imagine if there was no money in the ATMs. Right, you've, you, you, that's your political nightmare. You're going to call Armageddon time, right? You don't want to do this, so you bail them, right? But if you bail them, what you meant to do is you meant to bail, fail, and send to jail. And we did the bail, but we didn't do the fail, and we didn't do the send to jail. And what you end up with is a gigantic put on the taxpayer, because you take all that private sector debt, dump it on the balance sheet of the public sector, say, oh, look at all that public debt. The state's out of control. We need to cut spending. Well, who cuts spending? Well, you dump it through the state's balance sheet. You're ultimately cutting it from the bottom end of the. Debt income distribution problem. They don't have any money. 
So you can try this, but it's another reason why austerity is pointless. There simply isn't any cash down there to go vacuum it up. And if you start cutting the services of uh, people at the bottom end of the income distribution, that will cost you a lot more than the net sums you're saving in the long run from political instability, ill health, as we're finding out from the new book that's come out. So basically, I came to the point where I was like, well, what would actually happen if we had let them collapse? And the big fear was contagion through the CDS market. Well, if a bunch of people who were daft enough to write unbacked insurance policies sold them to another people, a bunch of people who are daft enough to basically buy them, they're net-net against each other. So why not just let the whole market fold? Let people take their losses because they made stupid bets and move on. Why does this have to be global contagion systemic risk? This sounds an awful lot like Goldman Sachs and other big banks scaring the bejesus out of the government so they can get their assets insured for free again. I don't think that's right. Just on that point, I'm going to move on back to the UK, but don't people that haven't made bad bets, don't they suffer as well when a bank collapses? Aren't there knock-on effects that drags in all of society? And there are knock-on effects to bailouts. There are redistributionary outcomes to bailouts. So basically, if you are at the bottom or middle part of the income distribution, you rely on publicly produced goods and services, public schools, whatever it happens to be, the private schools, I mean state schools you call them here, but, and basically you bail out the financial sector and suddenly we all have to make cuts. Well, essentially what you're doing is you're taking an income hit, a pensioner or someone, a social security has to be reduced or Medicare in the US has to be changed or the NHS has to be trimmed because we've spent too much. Well, spent too much doing what? Saving the assets of people who have all of the assets. Now, that's redistributionary, that's costly. Unemployment is generated, so those people have lower sort of lifetime incomes going forward. Consumption for the economy overall takes a hit. We end up in a worse fiscal shape. Now, all of those things are costs. So there are costs either way. It's just a question of who bears them. I'd like the banks to bear some of the costs. In the UK, um, they've justified in 2010 when the new government came in, they've justified austerity by saying we need uh, to show credibility to the market. We have a huge debt by cutting it now taking the, you know, the tough choice, but the right choice, and they point now to the low bond yields as kind of a proof of that success. Uh, <laughs> what do you say to that? It's complete garbage from beginning to end. If you look at the yield curve overall, the yield curve never spiked. It's not as if somehow in 2008 Britain was paying 14% on its tenure. It simply didn't happen. What's actually happened is the credibility has been so enhanced that you've lost two of the three AAA credit ratings. So that's hardly evidence of the fact that this works. Moreover, we see this across Europe. What was being priced in was the risk of breakup of the euro. That's why European yields went up. Because if you let Greece out, you have to sell Greece. To cover your losses in Greece, you have to sell Portugal. Once you sell Greece, Portugal, and Ireland, you're up to 11% of GDP, and you have to sell on Spain. But you can't sell on Spain because there's too much of it. So you end up blowing up the core banks. So in order to stop this, you basically put your foot on the neck of Greece and say, you're going nowhere. You add liquidity, squeeze, and pray. What has that got to do with us? We don't have our own. We have our own currency. We, we devalued. We're able to print our way out of trouble. We can't generate inflation oddly, but we can print our way out of trouble at least in terms of saving the financial assets of the banks. Once that became clear, the yield stabilised. Nothing to do with austerity. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Austerity has actually caused the United Kingdom to continue to have more debt rather than less. The United States, who hasn't cut at all, apart from the idiotic sequester, which is relatively minor, is on track for a 3% deficit this year. We're looking at 7 Why? Because we've self-harmed. Well, I'll bring up uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff. So, obviously, kind of discredited uh, coding errors and all of that, but yet the, the research, the kind of the general argument of the association between high debt and low growth it's still there. What they are, when you take a paper apart, forget the coding error, most of it's driven by two countries, Italy and uh, Japan. 
And we know empirically that, that the reason they have a lot of debt is because they have low growth. The causation runs the other way. So number one, the causation runs the other way. Number two, it's all driven by two countries. Right? Now, of course, the following makes intuitive sense, and they're claiming the sense is supportable. Is it better to have 20% debt, 60% debt, or 200% debt? Well, you'd probably want to have 60 But you know what? You can probably go quite far out in the curve before you start to really fall off the cliff. So 90% for Greece might be toxic because they have uh, terrible credibility in the markets, they have real funding needs, and they haven't run a budget surplus in 50 years. The United States prints the global reserve asset. It's kind of different. So unless you really contextualize this and start to look at different countries, different things, the notion that all countries fall off a cliff at 90% isn't just a coding error. It's just a silly misrepresentation of the way that markets look at countries as funding risks. It's just simply not true. So let me ask you, if you were a policymaker, uh, let's say in charge of the UK um, economic policy, with no political constraints, uh, what would you do to get the UK out of this mess that they're in? Well, first I would have my own private island with nuclear missiles. No, um, what would I actually do? Well, the first one's really simple. First, it's, it's a hip- I like to call it Hippocratic economics, right? First of all, do no harm. Just stop doing it. A really good example of this is people say, well, what about the Baltics? They had this huge crash and then they rebounded. It's like, well, you know why they rebounded? They stopped doing austerity. So, you know, just stop harming yourself. That's a good one. Don't do it. And all this happened in the United States, for the United States to basically be growing much faster than everybody said was possible, is they didn't do it. So we have this giant natural experiment across the world where the people who didn't do it are growing and their debts are shrinking. The people like Britain, who didn't have to do it but chose to do it. They've got greater debts and greater deficits. And the people who basically cut the most, I mean, Greece has lost 30% of GDP in four years, right? They have enormous deficits and they still have enormous debts and they've got smaller economies to service them. So just stop doing it. Second thing is you've got your own currency, your reasonably solvent country, as the Britain actually is, and uh, your profile in terms of demographics, etc., is certainly better than Southern Europe. You can borrow effectively at negative real rates. Why would you not do productivity enhancing investments that you badly need in infrastructure and lots of other things? So just those two things alone would make a huge amount of difference, and they're not that difficult. But once you box yourself into a rhetorical corner, it's very hard to get out of that, and that's the problem. Look at the IMF. The IMF is saying, basically, congratulations on your medium-term strategy because we think it's given you credibility, which is awful, ridiculous because you've lost two or three AAA ratings, as I've said already. But you really need to do stuff in infrastructure. Now, when the IMF are basically ta- admitting the reality of positive and negative multipliers and talking about infrastructure spending, you know you've come a long way. And if you're on the wrong side of that curve, you really are doing the wrong thing. That was Mark Black discussing his book, Austerity, The History of a Dangerous Idea, out now in hardback from Oxford University Press. Now we take a closer look at the role of central banks and the actions they have taken to mitigate the ill effects of the financial crisis. Central banks are monopoly issuers of home currencies, and thus their actions are of particular importance in times of economic crisis. Central banks in crisis-hit countries around the world have responded to the recessions by cutting interest rates, enacting quantitative easing, which is a process of buying government bonds and assets in exchange for central bank cash, and by pumping liquidity into the financial system. I recently sat down with Claire Jones, reporter at the Financial Times, to discuss the role of central banks, particularly that of the Bank of England, in handling the economic crisis. We explore the government's help-to-buy scheme and discuss what line Mark Carney may take as the Bank of England's new governor. But first, I asked Claire about the independence of central banking, which is an issue of growing concern, especially in light of recent developments at the Bank of England's Financial Policy Committee, 
the FBC, a new committee which is tasked with macroprudential regulation and ensuring a healthy financial system. The FBC hired two supposed city insiders replacing people who were considered independent, highlighting a growing concern that the bank is too influenced by the government and the City of London. I think central banks certainly look a lot less independent than they did before the crisis began. But my feeling on central bank independence is that central banks could only ever be independent within government. And the reason why I said that was because the government always has the power to change the legislation on which a central bank's independence is based. So a central bank really does always have to have buy-in from government for what it's doing. Having said that, I think pursuing policies such as quantitative easing where central banks are buying government bonds, the separation between fiscal and monetary policy becomes a lot muddier now than it was before the crisis. And I think given that it's impossible to say that central banks are as independent as they were, say, five years ago. So uh, regarding the unconventional central bank policy quantitative easing, and comparing the US, the U.S. and U.K. situations. Do you think it's having a positive economic impact overall? What is concerning central bankers at the moment is the impact that QE is having on, the, on asset prices relative to the real economy. I don't think QE is in any way a, a panacea. In the U.S., it's probably helped that you had, you had fiscal stimulus and you know, the, the U.S. and the UK economy are very different beasts to know whether you know, the US's success relative to the UK's is all down to quantitative easing. So with the asset prices kind of potentially being inflated uh, by QE, does it help that the government now has a help to buy scheme that's encouraging home ownership? We have a lot of um, recent articles on our blog saying that it's going to boost demand, but that the supply is not going to catch up to that and it's just going to inflate prices even more. It's rare that all economists agree on an issue but one area where there does seem to be you know a very strong consensus is on help to buy economists don't like it at all they think it will as you say inflate prices without doing a lot to boost housing supply i think it will be very interesting to see um what mr carney and the financial policy committee at the bank of england do about help to buy in a few years from now. I, I think the decision about whether to carry on with it may well fall to that committee and if they'll be able to make a decision based on you know, economic fundamentals and asset price bubbles or whether they'll feel there's political pressure on them as well to support the housing market. Could you compare for me, now that there's a new central bank governor here in the UK, Mark Carney, who's just started his new job the beginning of July, and the potential line he'll take, the policies he'll enact, with his predecessor, the outgoing Sir Mervyn King. I think Mark Carney has certainly been brought in by Chancellor George Osborne because it looks as though he's more willing to take action than his predecessor. At the same time, I don't think... Mark Carney has tempered his own views just to chime with what he thinks George Osborne wants to hear. I think for a long time, during his stints as the governor of the Bank of Canada, 
Um, even though it didn't come to that, Connie made clear that he would pursue credit easing if the conditions in the Canadian economy demanded it. And he was also very pioneering in the respect that he introduced what's known in central banking circles as forward guidance. Forward guidance can cover many things, but what Carney did, which was very pioneering, was to say that we will keep interest rates at their current really low levels until what was then, you know, I think it was kind of nine months a year into the future. The idea behind such a policy is that it offers the public reassurance and with that they'll go out and spend or they'll go out and borrow more. That's something that he seems to be keen on doing in the UK as well. Now, I don't think, I think that's something that, I think Mr Osborne has made it clear that he'd support such a thing, but at the same time, I don't think Carney's doing it just because he's got the Chancellor's backing. I think he's got a track record of being more willing than Mervyn King to take more radical action. People are calling for, you know, the ability for banks to lend out and that would boost the economy by, you know, credit being created once more. But then you have a more, I guess, radical kind of economists and thinkers that's saying, well, this actually shows the, the failure of neoliberalism and, and kind of the instability of, of, of this kind of how this economy works, the, you know, excessive credit growth and really all the economic growth has really just been kind of a debt bubble. It, I mean, it's an amazing time to be an economics reporter because on one hand we want to see more credit growth at the same time, um, that there was so much credit growth in, in the run-up to the crisis, um, you know, has left us in a, in a total and utter mess. I think it's, it's very, very difficult to know what is really going on. An argument I do find persuasive is that put forth by a former IMF chief economist called Raghu Rajan, who's, um, who's written a book called Fault Lines in which he talks about how you know, the relatively loose monetary policy in the US in recent decades has it's masked over the problems that you ha- you've seen in the real economy and it's stopped know governments taking action on structural reform it's it's allowed governments to sit on their hands i think there is an element of truth in that i also think as um mr rajan points out in fault lines as well that monetary policy is subject to diminishing returns and the more that you try to use it to fix the economy's problems the more you risk merely papering papering over the cracks you know, while I think that you know these arguments are very persuasive, you know, people out there are suffering now. There are small businesses who can't borrow, the, and it's it's very difficult in such a circumstance to say, well, this is the time when we really need to get tough and we just need to pull back all the monetary stimulus and just try to ensure that politicians step up and act on these structural measures. If you do that and the politicians aren't able to act, then you just end up with such a mess economically and socially. I guess maybe a final question. Um, 
what is your forecast of the of the UK economy? What would you say? <laughs> Which is a question <laughs> I, nobody well, knows the answer to. <laughs> I'm not an economist. I just I just write the news and um, you know, it's, it, forecasting is a is a fool's game. I think um, in the UK at least we've had a few months of um, of good data. I mean, I think it's you know, it's definitely too soon to tell about whether we're going to see. Um, yeah, meaningful recovery, and you know what the post-crisis economy is gonna look like. But you know there have been a few signs that things aren't as bad as they were at the turn of the year. So you just you kind of forecast the news there. Right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if if even the economists can't do a decent job of forecasting, I don't think I'm gonna try. But things do seem to be on the up. Yeah, it's great to end off on an optimistic, hopeful note. (laughs) That was Claire Jones. That's all for this month's episode. Join us next time for our two- or maybe three-part series on inequality. We'll be talking to experts and policymakers about different forms of inequality, from income to intergenerational inequality. This podcast was produced by Cheryl Brumley, and for a full list of the music and sound, visit us at lscpoliticsblog.com. I'm Joel Suss. Thanks for listening.